3: This is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your beehived brethren of British soul diva details. Yes, you know we're no good, but you got to love us anyway. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Seigel. Holy shit, buddy. You give me that one? <laughs> wow. k out. you're coming out swinging. Oh well, Coming in hot. You know what? I, I've got so much love and excitement for this one. We are paying tribute to my favorite album of the 21st century. And don't just take my word for it. The Guardian proclaimed it as such a few years back. I'm talking about Amy Winehouse's masterwork, Back to Black. And, you know, I've said many times on this show that I wasn't really connected to a lot of contemporary pop culture when I was younger. But uh, this, this I let into my heart. The moment I heard it soon after it was released in 2006, and I hold it close to this day. It's an album steeped in heartbreak after Amy's obsessive five-story fire of a relationship with Blake Fielder Civil came to an end the first time around. And Amy burned bright for such a short time. She was only a truly global artist for about four years, from the summer of 2007 until her death in the summer of 2011. But her star burns bright. What do you think, Heigl? Did she affect you in the same way that... uh she affected me, and not
5: deeply emotionally, but I do like her music. I mean, for me, it's a little bit more about the Dap Kings. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, Amy's great, man. What do you say about her? You know, like she real. She's a real one, one of a kind talent. Yeah, she was a real one, and and a very troubled person. Yeah. and uh, y- you try not to let the latter overshadow the former. Yeah, you know. Yes, but it can be tough.
4: Sorry, I was depressing. <laughs> no, I know. We're gonna try. We're gonna try not to let that be the the tone of this episode. But I know you're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, she will forever be one of my all time favorites, and people far more eloquent than I have praised her as a once in a generation voice for multiple reasons. In terms of her lyrical point of view, which brought a hip hop swagger into vintage American soul and a dose of twenty first century cynicism into songs that really could have otherwise almost been jazz standards. And then, of course, the thing that's so obvious that we haven't even bothered to mention it yet, her singing, which borders on the supernatural as far as I'm concerned. Um, I once had the great privilege of spending an afternoon with another late, great, Ronnie Spector of the fabulous Ronettes, Mm. and uh, she was a fellow member of the Beehive Sisterhood, ladies with big hair, big voices, and big spirits who were mistreated by small men in their lives, and the topic of Amy Winehouse came up, and Ronnie said that Amy's talent was... A pretty strong argument that singing came from the soul and clearly Amy had a very old soul. Otherwise, there was really no explaining how that sound came out of that body. And I couldn't help but smile then and now to think how Amy would have enjoyed hearing that from one of her idols. She loved Ronnie Spector. Uh, And I have to say I'm inclined to agree with Ronnie. After Amy's death, she was praised by so many, including Bob Dylan, who described her in 2017 as, quote, the last real individualist around, which I like. Adele thanked her for paving the way for her and other neo-soul divas, and Lady Gaga echoed the sentiment of fans all over the world when she tweeted, I remember feeling not alone because of Amy. She lived jazz and she lived the blues. And I think that's the real reason why Amy's legacy will continue to endure. It's more than just her talent. How can you thank someone who got you through so many broken hearts? And that's what she did for me. And I know I'm not alone. The BBC wrote an article a few years back suggesting that Back to Black was the millennials version of I will survive, which I'm hmm. not sure if I totally agree with the comparison, but I see what they're going for. Amy's producer and friend Mark Ronson probably summed it up best. The pain that she expressed helped so many people get through their pain. She showed us the darkest part of herself and somehow did it in a way that made people smile. I think that's a neat trick. She was so brutally honest and so wickedly funny, especially when it came to her own self-assessments. The most enduring description of her in my mind came from a uh, Newsweek profile in 2007, which described her as, quote, a perfect storm of sex kitten, raw talent, and poor impulse control. (laughs) Uh, Accurate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. reading that as, like, a 20-year-old, I remember thinking, yeah, dream girl. (laughs) She was flawed, but there was a strength there. And, you know, I think of the title of her posthumous record, Lioness. That always seemed like the word to describe it. And, you know, in a strange way, I think that Amy Winehouse gave hope to the rest of us imperfect people to try to be better, to try to find our own special thing, whatever it may be, that gives us grace even when we're feeling, like, A mess in every other area of her life. She wore her heart on her sleeve and you couldn't help but love her. And it's tempting to think of her as a friend because she seemed to trust the audience as one. And when she died, I mourned her as a friend, as silly as that sounds. It's probably the only celebrity death that I actually shed a tear over. And not just selfishly for all the music that we never got to hear from her, but because she was someone who seemed so vulnerable and sensitive. And you got the sense that she seemed to know the value of feeling loved and feeling peace. And you hoped against hope that she'd find it. And uh, and I think that her death was a shocking wake-up call. I mean, this was the era when Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and Britney Spears were all struggling publicly and they were basically just punchlines for late-night comedians and tabloids. And everyone just sort of (laughs) conveniently ignored the fact that these were life-or-death situations, which is what made Amy's death so much more perversely tragic. It just seemed so obvious, you know? I mean, there was nothing about it that was a surprise whatsoever, but somehow you didn't actually think it would end that way. I know I didn't. And the cognitive dissonance with that was just so strange. And I I think that her death went a long way in ensuring that people struggling in the public eye aren't covered that way by the media ever again.
5: We really, I mean, not we, you and I, we were not part of that infrastructure, but... Well, I, I com-
4: well, my, my first couple of years was yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't write mean things, but I remember that was sure. definitely part of the environment.
5: Yeah, I mean, just that whole era, we we really failed a generation of women who obviously and clearly needed help and were turned into ongoing
4: punchlines. There's a book called um, Trainwreck: The Women We Love to Hate, Mock, and Fear, and Why by Sadie Doyle, which is really interesting. And basically, is uh, a cultural history of how female celebrities are covered in the media. These like the, the women I mentioned, the Paris Hiltons, the Lindsay mm. Bohans, the Britney Spears, and and Amy Winehouse. And then she also does this really interesting thing: these interstitial chapters where she goes back in time and writes about famous women in history as if they were being covered by a, you know, 2010 era blogger. Uh, And it's, it's a really interesting book. I encourage folks to check it out. It's really interesting. But, I mean, taking it more personal, my one-way bond with Amy was forged in January 2009. Uh, In order to get over a failed relationship situation, I'd enrolled in a six-month study abroad program in London in hopes that a change of scenery would help me get over my broken heart. But uh, here's a tip. If you're trying to get over a heartbreak, don't go to a place where you know no one in frigid January where there's about five hours of sunlight a day. So uh, yeah, that wasn't great and I just used to wander London daily uh, just for hours on end with my iPod playing Back to Black as my soundtrack. And our dorm was in North London, and I knew that Amy lived a short walk away in Camden. And I'd read uh, one of those Up All Night with Amy Winehouse Rolling Stone profiles or something where uh, I learned that she had a habit of going outside and welcoming any stray fans in and cooking them burnt toast and tea. And uh, yeah, I just thought that was sweet and sad. I guess she just didn't want to be alone. So I'd wander up there during my semester in London and try to find her house and hope she'd bring me inside to this day I couldn't tell you why I think I just was so bummed out and her music made it clear that she'd been through something similar and you know I guess I thought maybe she could big sister me through it Um, I also got the sense that maybe she needed a friend too I'm still bummed I never got to see her uh, then in London or in concert. Uh, Aside from festivals, she really didn't do normal concerts or tours very much after 2007. And even those were spotty just because of her health. Uh, One of my treasured possessions is a concert ticket from a show in the fall of 2007 that she never got to give. um, Cancelled for some combination of personal and logistical problems. I would have loved to have cashed that ticket in and gone. Anyway. Enough of my pathetic love note <laughs> to Amy Winehouse. Let's get into the agony and ecstasy of this wonderful record. From the relationship drama and emotional turmoil that inspired it, to the renegade band of Brooklyn soul musicians who gave it the groove, the argument that led to her cover of the Zootone song, Valerie, that's on whips, and how Mark Ronson got Amy Winehouse to overcome her unholy hatred of strings. Here's everything you didn't know about Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. In 2005, Amy Winehouse was at a crossroads. <laughs> Every re- time. Yeah, I know. She'd released her debut album, <laughs> Frank, two years earlier, an album that you could call R&B-influenced jazz tunes or jazz-influenced R&B tunes. I guess there's a little bit of both on there. Have you heard that record? Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's, it's a good, good. album, yeah. Uh, I mean, Amy was... I mean, no other way to put it, a jazz vocal prodigy. She was singing Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington songs in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra as a teenager. And in the amazing 2015 Amy documentary uh, by Asif Kapadia, it opens with this amazing home movie of Amy and her tween friends goofing around on her friend's 14th birthday. And it looks like any other home movie until Amy launches into an impromptu version of Happy Birthday. And it sounds like full-grown Amy Winehouse. It's crazy. Again, it gets back to what Ronnie Spector said, this old soul just coming out of this 13, 14-year-old girl. It's insane. And her 2003 album, Frank, it was a modest hit in the UK and established her as one of the country's most distinctive vocalists and won her quite a few prestigious awards, the Ivor Novello Award, a Mercury Music Prize, and was nominated for a Brit Award, which is basically like the UK Grammys. But Amy, who just turned 20 when it came out, was deeply unhappy with it. She was signed to Simon Fuller's management, and he'd previously overseen the Spice Girls and created the show that American Idol was based on. So he kind of had a whole business of creating cookie cutter pop stars, basically. And although he was smart enough not to try to shove her into that mold, there was a certain degree of interference in her sound. He hired some songwriters who polished off her really highly personal songs. And Amy was not happy with this, and she was not quiet about it in her interviews. Speaking about her album, Frank, she told the Guardian, I don't have it in my house (laughs) (laughs) before begrudgingly admitting that it isn't this is going to be I'm going to break my 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 long held no swearing on this show uh, edict for Amy Winehouse, because otherwise we're not going to be able to get through her interview quotes or her songs. (laughs) Um in a 2004 interview with The Observer titled, I love this, Charmed and Dangerous, Amy said, Some things on this album make me go to a little place that's fing bitter. I've never heard the album from start to finish. The marketing was f***ed, The promotion was terrible. Everything was a shambles. It's frustrating because you work with so many idiots, but they're <laughs> nice idiots. So you can't be like, you're an idiot. And they know they're idiots. <laughs> Quote machine, Amy Winehouse. <laughs> like, uh, there's a this priceless interview that you can hear in that Amy documentary I mentioned where this chipper Dutch radio interviewer just tosses her a softball about, you know, Hey, how's your new album? What do you think? And Amy just seethes about how pissed she is about the string sounds on the album, especially on the song, take the box. She quote, hated the guy who did it and went on and on and on about how she'd never let anyone do that to her songs again. We'll talk more about that later. So Frank was a bit flawed in her own eyes, but it did well enough to mean that the public and her label eagerly anticipated her follow-up. Hilariously, I think she still might have been working as a journalist, actually, at this time, at the World Entertainment News Network. We used to get photos from them when I was at VH1 back in, like, 2009, huh. 2010. Yeah. So it's funny, for all the years that she was hounded by... Uh, paparazzi. By paparazzi, she- that she used to work in the entertainment journalism field. That's so funny. Uh, Yeah, I know, it's so weird. You can kind of hear it in her lyrics, though. I mean, she has such a great economy of language Mm -hmm. that you could almost see being born from her days as a journalist. She was initially considering doing that as her full-time career. But by January 2005, now that Frank was falling down the charts, she'd quit her day job and was tasked with writing her next album. But it just wasn't happening. Uh, This writer's block was really bad. And by her own admission, she was just hanging out at the pub all day. The Holly Arms, which was near her house in the North London neighborhood of Camden. And she just played pool, drank too much, and listened to 60s girl groups and Motown on the jukebox. And these were the sounds that she loved as a girl. And rediscovering them on the pub jukebox pretty much gave her a new direction for her new album. And long before the album Back to Black was released, she was telling the press, I'm not a jazz girl anymore. She's talking to the UK outlet, The Sun. She said, these new songs are more accessible than the tracks on Frank, as jazz is quite elitist. People don't get it. I've been listening to 60s bands and girl groups. There's a lot of bands which are 60s influence at the moment, but I guess I'm the only girl doing it. And then later on, she would be followed by the likes of Adele and Duffy. Remember Duffy and Joss Stone? I sure do. And Paloma Faith and Little Boots. Duffy was great. Rock Fairy was a great album. Um, And, of course, that's when you start seeing the Ronnie Spector influence coming in for Amy. The beehive hair, the Cleopatra makeup, the mini skirts. And Amy would later say that the beehive was a physical manifestation of her insecurities. And whenever she was nervous, she would tell her hairstylist, make it taller, make it taller. (laughs) I love her so much. (laughs) So now you have the sound and the style of Back to Black coming to the fore. But she needed the emotional catalyst. And this took the form of one Blake Fielder Civil, her boyfriend and frequent drinking buddy during these pub nights out in Camden Town. Blake had a minor role in the music industry as an assistant on music videos, and he's generally seen as something of a a 'er ne'er-do-well, a reputation bolstered by the fact that he did prison time for perversion of justice. As a uniquely UK... Yeah, I was just thinking, yeah, terminology. that Death by misadventure are the two very, uh, very uniquely UK terms that unfortunately appear in this episode. Uh, I believe he beat up a pub landlord and then tried to pay him to withdraw allegations and leave the country. Mm. So yeah, assault and trying to basically bribe a, a victim. So yeah, anyway, just a real charmer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Blake is the man whose name is literally tattooed on Amy's heart, or at least over it. Uh, He's traditionally portrayed as the villain in the Amy Winehouse story, or at least an extremely bad influence. Look, I don't know much about addiction treatment or relationship codependency or psychology in general to be able to speak on this in any meaningful or intelligent way, but blaming Amy's troubles squarely on Blake... Feels like a reductive take and a disservice to both of them. It's like using Mike Love as the scapegoat in the Beach Boys uh, for the Which troubles I'm happy the Beach Boys went through. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I worship Brian Wilson, but and yeah. Mike is a less sympathetic character, but takes two flawed people, etc. The depth of Amy and Blake's codependency was such that, as Amy herself later said, "I want to feel what he feels." And when you have two troubled people with addictive personalities, you're basically just magnifying each other's problems. She wanted to feel what he felt, which included crack cocaine, heroin, and even self-harm. They were in the midst of a fight one night when Blake grabbed the bottle and broke it and started cutting his arm. And then Amy grabbed the bottle from him and cut her own arm while looking at him dead in the eye and told him, I'll do anything you do, which is chilling. I was a guest on the iHeart podcast, Personology, a few years back, which was hosted by Dr. Gail Saltz, a psychologist. And each episode, she would psychoanalyze a historical figure, and we did one on Amy Winehouse together. And her insights were deeply fascinating, if uh, you want to go check that out. There's a great passage from the 2007 Rolling Stone profile on Amy that is, I think, really illustrative of their obsessive love. Winehouse has insisted from the beginning of her career that she's a simple girl crazy in love with her man. Her life, her history, and talent all seem barely worth talking about when one could talk about Blake, how fit he is, how perfect for each other they are. We're so in love. We're a team. She rhapsodizes to me. Blake, 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 Blake. It's as if she's putting herself in a trance. A woman named Nicole chimes in, I'm gonna fall in love like Amy. I think I've been in love before. Annie lifts her head. No, no. If you had, you'd be dead because you weren't together right now. So that's what we're dealing with. Um, I Blake hadn't had heard been... that one before. Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, again, this is why this album, I, I don't think that you need to know the backstory to be able to judge the emotional content of a song. I don't, and we talked about that in the Revolver episode. Mm -hmm. That's the song for no one on Revolver, which is about the the dissolution of a relationship. Literally outlines that in the lyrics and it's devastating. You don't need to know anything about the person who wrote that song in order for that to hit you. In this case with Amy, the lyrics hit you directly, but then when you go a little bit under the surface and you actually learn a little bit about her and her relationships, it just takes on a whole new level. And Maybe this is why this is an album that I I, I almost feel protective of. She seems so without skin, mm. just just so raw. Just such a raw nerve that went through life. That um, what was that Nick Drake documentary? Solid Air. No, A Skin Too Few, mm. which is a, a documentary on the uh, on the late folk singer, songwriter, British folk singer, songwriter, Nick Drake, skin too few. It reminds me of uh, of Amy. Just, just some, I, I think maybe that's why I, I, and fans feel such a kinship towards her. It's almost like you want to protect this person in some strange way because the emotions are just so all-consuming for her. And, uh, and, you know, as a teenager, a late teenager for me, when I discovered her music, that hit home because that's what being a teenager is like. But she never really grew out of that, I guess. Or didn't have a chance to. So this is what we're dealing with. Blake had been dating someone when they met. And at some point in mid-2005, he told Amy that he was going back to her. Just like the lyrics said in Back to Black. Then it got messy. Amy took revenge by sleeping with his friend. And she later explained, I knew it would be the nail in the coffin. I knew that when he found out, he wouldn't be able to talk to me ever again. I knew I had to do it because one of us had to finish the other one off because we just broke each other's hearts repeatedly. When the relationship finished, I went nuts. I was the most reckless ever. I just went mad. I'd look in the fridge and think of him. I'd walk up the stairs and see blood and see him because he used to punch the walls. Jesus Christ. As we'll get to later, they would ultimately reunite and get married after the album, inspired by their breakup, had become a hit all around the world. Coincidence? Mm.
5: (sighs) Well, this emotional trauma had the upside of breaking through Amy's writer's block, and she began writing the bulk of what would become Back to Black in late 2005. She later said, When I sit down and I have a lot of feelings that I can't deal with, that's when I write songs. I've always written songs at points in my life when I don't know what to do except write a song. So I guess that's why they come out kind of traumatized. So she was processing her grief, guilt, and heartbreak, and songs that, I guess as she was writing them, felt romantic. But in retrospect, (laughs) are all kinds of heavy, capturing the full spectrum of that codependent relationship. As Electris Petritus writes in his Guardian piece calling Back to Black the greatest album of the 21st century, these songs are shot through with references to hedonism that always feel nihilistic, never celebratory. There are umpteen mentions of booze and drugs, but none to partying or having a good time, only their ability to obliterate. Amy told Rolling Stone in 2007, after they'd reunited around the time they got married, all the songs are about the state of my relationship at the time with Blake. I had never felt the way I feel about him, about anyone in my life it was very cathartic because i felt terrible about the way we treated each other i thought we'd never see each other again he laughs about it now he's like what do you mean you thought you'd never see each other again we love each other we've always loved each other but i don't think it's funny i wanted to die mark ronson who produced half the songs on back to black would later say that when it came time to record the songs it seemed very clear that they were writing about an era in amy's life that
4: she'd moved past But I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, having to, you know, go through all these songs and not only to write them, but then also sing them and then sing them on stage. Mm -hmm. You have to wonder if it's talk about them in the press. Yeah. I've just had the unintended side effect of just re-traumatizing her.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's that whole thing about how child stars are stuck at the age that they become famous at. And mm. Sure, I mean, it's not a stretch to extend that to the idea that you are stuck in the emotional state that you create art in while you're having to recreate that art constantly, which is a grim thing for any performing artist to have to confront. Yeah. That's
4: a, that's a beautiful way to put it. I mean, she, she would later say, you know, when you write songs, you have to remember everything. You have to remember what the wind felt like. You have to remember what his neck smelled like. And we mentioned that her earlier album, Frank, had used a lot of co-writers on her songs, whether she wanted to or not. Uh, Seven out of the 11 tracks on Back to Black were written solely by Amy, without any co-writer. So clearly these were much more
5: personal. The writer Laura Barton wrote in a piece in The Guardian after Amy's death called Amy Winehouse Sang of a Deeply Feminine Suffering. The piece examines Amy's lyrics, which Barton compares to the raw honesty of early blues women like Ethel Waters, Ma Rainey, Big Mama Thornton. She wrote, Pop music had often cast women as sweet, bright creatures, but Winehouse's lyrics revealed something mulchier, messier. Here was a woman who refused to conform, not in the eccentric mad woman in the attic mold of Kate Bush or Bjork, yeah. <laughs> but a woman who chose to live a little wild. Follow her heart and sing of the simple stew of being female. Her songs were filled with broad talk, cussing, drink and drugs and dicks. Song that could hinge on one magnificent unladylike question. What kind of free <laughs> is this? She sang openly of female desire. Not the squawky, shrill sexuality of sex in the city, but something truer, more physical, more serious. She sang about the ache of the body, the need for emotion... The distracting allure of a man's shoulders, shirt, underwear. When he comes to me, I drip for him tonight, she sang on Wake Up Alone. Drowned in me, we bathe under blue light. That was actually the first song recorded during the sessions for Back to Black, done with producer Paul O'Duffy, who is best known for producing Swing Out Sister. What the hell is that, Jordan? Oh, you know Swing Out Sister.
4: It's like a New Jack Swing group from... uh... No, I don't. Oh, that's all I know. Uh, he's kind of written out of Amy's
5: story. Producers Salim Remy and Mark Ronson get most of the attention. But Amy spent a month in um, O'Duffy's North London studio working on songs, and it is the only one that wound up on the album, Wake Up Alone. Uh, The original idea was inspired by a 1972 song by Sarah Vaughan called Deep in the Night. And O'Duffy, who co-wrote the song with her, later told Mojo, she had a book and would be drawing pictures of herself with love hearts and things, and you knew she was off in another world. Then she started writing lyrics, and at a certain point, she said, oh, I've got something. In the normal process, a singer might share a lyric or melodic idea, but she sang it in one take. I was like, wow, where does this come from? Mark Ronson gave this song a bit of a retro girl group style revamp, but the original version, with Paula Duffy playing jazzy acoustic guitar, is included on the aforementioned posthumous rarities comp, Lioness
4: yeah wake up alone is one of my favorite songs on this album uh it's just such a great song of longing uh and unlike most torch songs out there which are usually variations of why did you leave me why did you do this to me you know think think adele amy's songs were occasionally pretty self-lacerating one of my favorite songs of hers ever is a song on frank called i've heard love is blind have you heard this song Mm mm-mm it's basically Amy talking to her boyfriend and she's justifying why she slept with some other guy. And i tried to pick a representative line from the lyrics, but after reading it over, it just felt like a sin to break it up because it reads like a short story. It's kind of a deep cut. I just, as much as that's possible for somebody who has so few songs, but I'd like to share the lines from the song with you. I've heard Love Was Blind. I couldn't resist him. His eyes were like yours. His hair was exactly the shade of brown. He's just not as tall, but I couldn't tell. It was dark and I was lying down. You are everything. He means nothing to me. I can't even remember his name. Why are you so upset? Baby, you weren't there and I was thinking of you when I came. What did you expect? You left me here alone. I drank so much and needed to touch. Don't ever react. I pretended he was you. You wouldn't want me to be lonely. How can I put it so you understand? I didn't let him hold my hand. But he looked like you. I guess he looked like you, though he wasn't you. But you can still trust me. This ain't infidelity. It's not cheating. You are on my mind. Yes, he looked like you, but I heard love is blind. I just think that's an incredible bit of lyric writing for so many different reasons. Uh, you almost believe her. You're, like, you're almost like, okay, I get it, which is a neat trick. Mm-hmm. But you also it's it's so unflattering to put that out there, but to do it so brazenly and so beautifully and so wittily to me. I, I know it's, it's kind of a, a, a deep cut on the non hit album, but that to me is, is, is one of her finer moments. It's a beautiful vocal performance, too. Um, and I share this because she brings the same sensibility to the back to black sessions, uh, specifically on, you know, I'm no good in which she admits in pretty graphic detail that she cheated on Blake. And when Mojo Magazine's Tom Doyle asked Amy if the lyric was true, she admitted, yeah, Blake hates it. He's really proud of me, but it's so personal it must be hard. When I'm like pen to paper, I'm the most honest I get. Uh, Just a side note, because if there's a Bond detour, I'm going to take it. The song makes reference to Roger Moore. You know, by the time I'm out the door, you tear men down like Roger Moore. Roger Moore was actually asked about this, and he said that he had no idea why Amy chose to include him in the lyrics. The best that he could come up with was that she either wanted a word that rhymed with door, or she couldn't find a word that rhymed with Connery.
0: (laughs) He's he's great.
5: Cockney... Cockney rhyming slang is much easier when it's
4: (laughs) monosyllabic. He's not my favorite Bond, but he kind of seems like probably the Bond that maybe is the nicest person. Have you heard that airport story? I don't think so. Oh man, I, this, I, I might cut this, but it's so, <laughs> it's so good. So I guess like at some point in the eighties, this little kid was at an airport and Roger Moore was sitting there and he was freaking out. He was so excited. So he got his dad to go over and get his autograph and his dad came back and brought the autograph over and handed it to the kid. Dad, what's this? What That's James Bond. Why does it say, who's Roger Moore? Why did he write? He write the name Roger Moore. What the hell's this? So the dad takes whatever he signed, goes back over to Roger Moore. Roger's like, um, like he nods, he gets it. He waves the mm-hmm. little kid over and goes, hey, you know, I know I, I wrote Roger Moore. That's the name I have to sign because it's my code name. Blofeld could be anywhere around here. Like, you're working with me now. Like, you get it? Roger Moore. Okay. So, and he was the cutest thing. 20 years go by and this kid grows up. He's like a video producer or something. And he crosses paths with Roger Moore again. And, He casually brings up that he'd run into him into this airport, you know, 20 years earlier. And Roger, you know, he's graceful about it, but, you know, he hasn't, of course, he doesn't remember. Why would anyone expect him to? Later, after the shoot's wrapped, it's the end of the day, they pass each other in the hallway, and Roger Moore waves him over and goes, of course, I remember our rendezvous at the airport, but I couldn't tell you there. There are too many witnesses. Of course, like, (laughs) of course, I remember. (laughs) What like you're you still boy. working for me. Yeah, isn't that great? I love that. Sean Connery would have just punched him in the mouth. I know.
5: <laughs> no. Was it Michael? Is it Michael Kane that tells a story about being in a bar with like Sean Connery and someone like talked <laughs> about him and like got up and like folded his jacket and like asked Michael Kane to hold it and then like. Beat the hell out of all four men, like outside of the pub.
4: Oh yeah, oh he he could. <laughs> I mean, wasn't he ex Navy and like a former Mister Universe, Mister Scotland, Mister something? Like he yeah, was, he was a bodybuilder. Yeah,
5: which is so funny because you look at those old shirtless pictures and you're like, that's what buff men used to be. <laughs> and you look at The Rock, who's like pre-steroidal. Yeah, my ninety percent human growth hormone. As you meditate on that. We'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
6: You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
5: At the end of 2005, Winehouse went to Miami to meet up with producer Salam Remy, who'd worked on her debut album, or at least the parts of it that she liked (laughs) Um, he'd worked with famous R&B names like the Fugees and Jasmine Sullivan and Miguel but managed to remain somewhat under the radar he's a great quote most people don't even know I exist and I don't want them to (laughs) know my name if you gotta write it on a check has been my motto for a long time that's uh, one for the ages yeah Uh, He was something of a father figure to Amy and a true confidant. She went to his private studio and over 10 days recorded five songs that would wind up on Back to Black. Tears Dry on Their Own, Some Unholy War, Me and Mr. Jones, Just Friends, and Addicted. And these sessions were very intimate with Amy playing guitar and singing while Salam added instruments that he usually played himself. Her engineer, Gary Noble, later said, like most British people who come here, she loved the sun. She, she loved reggae, so Miami having that island vibe was something she was into. She often went into Slum's back garden and worked on her lyrics. And it was sitting in that back garden, there in the blue shade she sang, that she finished the lyrics to what became Tears Dry on their own. As she explained to a crowd at Shepherd's Bush in 2007, this song's about when you're in a relationship and you know it's going to end, and you know you're going to be upset, but you know that you have to do it. She gave a little bit more detail about it to The Sun in October 2006, saying, Tears Dry on Their Own is a track about the breakup with Blake, my ex. Most of these songs are about him. I shouldn't have been in a relationship with him because he was already involved with someone else, a bit too close to home. The song is about when we split up and me saying to myself, yes, you're sad, but you'll get over it. And I did. I still talked to Blake, and once we got over the initial pain, it was fine. I believe you can be mates with your ex. I'm still really close to him as a friend and nothing more. Though Alex, my boyfriend now, doesn't like me seeing him, which is understandable, I guess. He was correct. Yeah. <laughs> she left him and, and married Blake. Uh, and that song is interesting because the backing track to it is basically the Marvin Gaye-Tammy Terrell duet Ain't No Mountain High Enough, written by the legendary Motown songwriting team
4: Ashford and Simpson. Oh, it's not were... basically, it is. They they have a songwriting credit on that. Is it a sample, or they just took No, the, they, they just re-recorded the entire backing track.
5: Oh, okay. The original version of Tears Dry in Their Own was done as a ballad, which you can hear on the aforementioned Lioness, rarities Cuts, uh, very down-tempo, and Salam was worried that all the tracks that they had done had a similar mid-tempo groove and was looking to change that up a bit. And by coincidence... He happened to come across some online leaks of these isolating Motown backing tracks. Ain't no mountain high enough, which I have. Yeah, I know I that exact too, yeah. that exact stem package mm-hmm. that he's talking about. Uh, and as he told Mojo, I was sitting there listening to it, and I was telling Amy. Tears Dry could work over that, but she just could not hear it. I almost had to sing it to get her to figure it out, and she was still frustrated. Being one-take Amy, that's the most swearing I recorded of her ever. He said it was the only time he'd ever seen her frustrated in the creative process. She just couldn't figure out how to shoehorn all those lyrics into the quicker version. That's a lot of lyrics. But it's a brilliant idea, because not only does it work from a melodic standpoint, but it's also thematically. She's singing a heartbroken song about being alone over the backing track for one of the most famous romantic duets of all time. As Salam said, the whole idea was making her sing very sad lyrics against an encouraging backing track. That juxtaposition, and also making one of the faster songs in the album, kind of gave it another spark. Um, that's probably the most famous example of Amy interpolating an old R&B soul track on Back to Black. But it's not the only one. There's also a bit of the backing track of a relatively obscure 1966 song, My Girl, She's a Fox, uh, by a group called The Icemen, which, funnily enough, features a pre-fame Jimi Hendrix, also a member of the 27 Club, playing oh. guitar, along with Lonnie
4: Youngblood. Oh, yeah, he's on sax. Have you heard that song? Yeah, I think so. That's a great song. <laughs>
5: That's Jimmy. That just sounds like the intro to "Fucking Wind Cries Mary. I know, I know. Yeah, it's great.
4: But that song was, uh, was it wasn't sampled, it was, it was revamped as uh, the song, He Can Only Hold Her. They really got the whole thing. They got the guitar intro, they got the backing vocals and everything.
5: Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a, we'll talk about this in a bit, but there's a, there's an uncomfortable whiff of ganking to this whole thing. Say what you will about the
4: Daptone guys, but at least they included black people. (laughs) Well, this is the era of like Mayor Hawthorne, where instead of like, you get people making fake 60s or soul songs or early 70s funk cuts that were specifically designed to be sold to yeah. hip producers to be chopped up. And then sometimes, like Mayer Hawthorne in particular, with stuff like Just Ain't Gonna Work Out, those songs would actually be released and and get airplay. it's is yeah. such an interesting way to go about it instead of just going crate diving. Anyway, Salam Remy produced the track Some Unholy War, which uh not one of my favorite songs on the album, both because it's downbeat and... And also, it's kind of an uncomfortable listen. Uh, Perhaps more than any song on this album, it's the one that I think best encapsulates the codependent tendencies between Blake and Amy. It's an obsessive song. It's about someone that she would die for. If my man was fighting some unholy war, I would be beside him. And the title came from a news radio broadcast about the war in Afghanistan, which used the term holy war. And Amy heard this and twisted it to kind of fit the themes of her relationship issues with Blake. I would imagine that she thought the whole song was very romantic, you know, right or wrong, stand by your man. It's basically an updated version of the Tammy Wynette song. It reminds me, when I was a teenager, I really loved the book Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov because to me, as a 15-year-old, it seemed like the first book I'd ever read that perfectly encapsulated the obsessive insanity of new love, which... It's a very teenage phenomenon. You know, I said that earlier. Uh, At the time, I was a teen. I obviously knew that the relationship in the book was wrong on every level, but there was something about it that almost seemed romantic to me in my emotional immaturity. You and Nick Cave. And then the older I got, I realized just how disturbing that kind of obsession and mm. codependency code actually is. And it's not romantic. It's just upsetting. That's kind of how I feel about this track, Some Unholy War.
5: It's also something a bit uh, quintessentially British about using a war in the Middle East as a metaphor for <laughs> your dating life. Like,
4: that's a first
5: pass idea.
4: This brings us to my favorite track to come from the Salam Remy Sessions at the end of 2005, Me and Mr. Jones. The title is a play on Billy Paul's soul ballad, Me and Mrs. Jones, but the Mr. Jones and Amy's version is the rapper Nas, born Nasir Jones. Amy was a huge fan of Nas and even sampled his instrumental, Made You Look, on the Frank track, In My Bed. And, you know, for all that's been written about Amy's love of jazz, hip hop was a major influence for her. As a child, she started a short lived salt and pepper style rap group called Sweet and Sour with her childhood friend. Guess which one Amy was, sweet or sour? Mm. The lyrics to me and Mr. Jones are so great. It is, to my knowledge, the first song that mentions both 80s MC Slick Rick and Sammy James <laughs> Jr. So it's got that going for it, which is nice. It kicks off with one of the greatest opening lines of all time. Again, breaking my no no F-bomb edict on the show. What kind of f***er is this? What an all-time opening lyric right there. Slum said that Amy had gotten that off of uh, West Indian slang. Which I guess is uh, I'm not familiar with Anyway She originally <laughs> wanted to call the song fury, But the label panicked It's thinking that She would never get it on the radio With a title like that Because as I'm discovering right now It's very hard to censor that word uh, <laughs> Of course this pissed Amy off to no end Well you know why can't I But they changed the title to Me and Mr. Jones Which is kind of a better title The song itself is about a guy she used to casually date who worked in the record industry, and she used to get free tickets off him. But for whatever reason, jealousy or incompetence, he couldn't come through with seats for a Slick Rick concert. Hence the, you maybe missed the Slick Rick gig. You thought I didn't love you when I did. Can't believe you played me out like that. Sounds like it was jealousy. Uh, He's holding out on her. But she refused (laughs) to miss the gig for Nas, who she really admired and reportedly kind of had a crush on. Hence, nobody stands between me and my man, me and Mr. Jones, Nasir Jones, Nas. And there are a lot of little hints in the song. She name checks Nas's daughter Destiny and also his birthday, September 14th, which coincidentally was also Amy's birthday. And Nas years later confirmed the song was about him in an October 2011 interview with XXL three months after Amy died, saying that they were actually planning a joint birthday celebration together be a fly on that wall, yeah. Nas told Genius that he only met her once in person. I didn't get a chance to really know her that much. I knew her through music. I knew her through Skype. I knew her through texting. I knew her through telephone. I knew her through hanging out one time in London. The greatest thing, and the thing that's sad, is that I met someone who shared my same birthday, and we had no competition, we had no beef, we had no tension. Nothing like that. It was like we always knew we were supposed to be cool. And that's as far as it goes. She was like a sister to me. And they actually collaborated twice, I imagine, just, you know, through email, on the songs Like Smoke and Cherry Wine, which were released after Amy's death. But now the question that I'm sure is on all of your minds, did she make it to the Nas concert? The short answer is, I don't know. But Google Sleuths have determined that there was indeed a Nas gig at the Brixton Academy, which she sings about, on March 21st, 2005, a show that was notable because it was interrupted by a shooting that took place a half hour into it that injured one concert goer. So... Let's hope that maybe she did miss the Nas gig after all. One funny thing about the song, Me and Mr. Jones is that you can hear a little bit of Amy's Englishness coming through. She put on the tea kettle while they were taping the instrumental track because the studio where uh, Salam Remy was working, I think was in his home in Miami. And she had the, the kettle on in the kitchen nearby and it started going off midway through the recording. And Salaam said that they were recording and, and they just see Amy run off and they didn't know why. And he was listening to the track later and you, you heard this high frequency and he realized it was the tea kettle and he left it on there, I guess, because he—you he can barely hear it. But if you listen to the end of the song, you can kind of hear this high frequency. It's like the phone ringing in the ocean
5: by Zeppelin. The oh, studio yeah. phone yeah. goes off <laughs> about halfway through that.
4: <laughs> uh, Amy is really cute. She used to love to use uh, Salam Remy's kitchen and enjoyed cooking big meals for all the musicians there after sessions. And those who knew Amy said she knew how to make a mean chicken soup, like like a good Jewish mother.
5: Hmm. Yeah, I know. But Back to Black had two producers, not just Salam Remy, but perhaps most famously, Mark Ronson. They had very different styles, with Amy as the linchpin. Salam described his contributions as being in the same town as Ronson's, but in a slightly seedier neighborhood, which is great. Um, Ronson came at his role as producer from an interesting position because he was a DJ. Uh, which, you know, good background because you quickly discover an instinct for what works and what doesn't in respect to the dance floor. Uh, he grew up in New York, attended NYU like Rick Rubin, uh, and he was fascinated by the link between hip-hop and the old soul records that they sampled. Even before he was globally famous for his work with Amy Winehouse, Ronson was DJing album release parties for people like Jay-Z. Uh, he was apparently the first DJ ever to play Biggie's Hypnotize
4: on a dance floor. Yeah, I verified this with him when I interviewed him for VH1 a bunch of years ago. And I'm to this day really proud at how shocked he looked when I dropped that fact on him. He was so surprised. <laughs> you I knew that. him. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, he'd say his DJ
5: sets during this era were 60% hip hop, 30% funk and disco, 20% reggae, and 10% rock and roll, which is a good blend. His early production work in the 2000s was very sample-based, and he came into the same orbit as Puffy, Pharrell, Busta Rhymes, Um, so not far from the hip-hop background that Salam Remy had. Bronson and Amy were first put in contact because they shared a publishing company, and she paid him a visit at his New York rehearsal studio in March of 2006. Before she met him, she apparently thought he was going to be some old dude with a beard a la Rick Rubin, uh, and she thought he was an engineer for the first few minutes uh, because he was just barely 30 years old at the time so they initially bonded on the superficial level at first roughly the same age jewish and english and initially he wanted to get just a sense of what she liked and her response was specific and evocative (laughs) talking to mojo he said she said she liked to go out to bars and clubs and play snooker with her boyfriend and listen to the shangri-la's so she played me some of those records, which turned into a crash course in girl group productions. And the thing that struck him first about those tracks was the drama. He later said in the 2018 Classic Albums documentary about Back to Black that those early 60s pop songs were selling heartbreak on this giant scale. <laughs> like the world is going to end if my boyfriend doesn't take me back. It's so annoying to me that that Walking in the Sand has become... Uh, oh, TikTok, TikTok meme. A TikTok meme because yeah. that song is like doom metal. Mm-hmm. Like when that <laughs> kicks in, ah,
4: uh, that's the so, song that she played him. That yeah? stuck in his head. That became back the piano part, to Back to Black. I'm gonna punch that in later. Uh,
5: whatever happens to. Oh. Amy said something similar in an interview in the lead up to the Grammys in 2008. So many songs today are like, you don't know me, I don't need you. But back then it was more like, I don't care if you don't love me, I will lie down in the road. I will pull pull out my heart and show it to you. So that was the
4: stuff that she was into. Again, this this should not surprise anyone. Mm Mm-hmm.
5: After she left, Mark spent the night in his studio trying to come up with some sort of instrumental track to play for her. And that's when he came up with the piano figure that would become the verse to Back to Black. That piano part feels very Shangri-La's, Walking in the Sand, as you mentioned. Uh, And then he added a drum pattern that is sort of reminiscent of Be My Baby. the Hal Blaine, the most iconic drum intro of all time, maybe. That'll get me some angry comments. Uh, But he was not coordinated enough to do the bass and snare at the same time. Uh, So he took the mallet off the foot pedal and just played it with his hands, Um, which is, you know, it worked. And then he built it up with some more over percussion, uh, tambourine, with caked in reverb. uh, That's his word. (laughs) Yeah, well i mean that's that's part of those motown stems you know you forget how those like an indispensable part of those motown tracks with the auxiliary percussion you had all those guys Mm. who grew up playing tambourine in church uh there's you know the chimes bells on it shakers and uh you know probably what did he probably throw on there like uh probably a mid filter and some tape emulator plugins on the piano
4: there's a great, if you care, which I can't imagine you do, but he, <laughs> he did something for the BBC, I think it was called Maestro, and it was like a 10 minute YouTube clip of it where he actually like literally just sits down with the stems on Pro Tools and goes through each filter that he used and like how he assembled it. it it's It's interesting, even if you don't. You know, care so much about the specific final product. It's just to see how he manipulates these sounds that he really just made, like in his little crappy studio, and made it sound like these wall of sound style, huge I mean, Wagnerian. You know, Seth,
5: who recorded the theme song for for this pod, this very podcast. Uh, same same mold. I mean, Dad Kings, dude. Like, there's,
4: know. you know. Welcome to the plugin portion of this program. <laughs>
5: Well, I just want to say because it's it's funny, like some of that gear stuff is interesting because it is these sounds that become highly sought after that are intrinsically shitty. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's Um, exactly what he says. Blake Mills, who is like a really sought after guitarist producer right now, buys these old movie projectors. He rewires them to use them as amps and preamps because of the, the guts of them. Color your tone in such a way that people like it's just so fascinating to me man it's just people reverse engineering old junky stuff to get that vibe to it and as we will mention as the dab tones later on we're like no we will not do that we will record directly to tape <laughs> uh anyway thus concludes the plug-in portions um so amy arrives back at the studio the following day and uh he plays it for her And Ronson told Fader in 2015 she really didn't get animated about anything ever. She just had this dead stare. So I thought what I did didn't work. And then she just looked at me and said, I love it. That's what I want my whole album to sound like. So she stayed for another five days, just me and her. And in that time, they worked on the songs Rehab, Back to Black, You Know I'm No Good, Love is a Losing Game, Wake Up Alone, and He Can Only Hold Her. He said it would usually start with her playing him songs on her nylon string guitar and And then he would get the chords from that. And then she would leave for the night and he would, quote, go nuts with the arrangements. But the whole process was done in just a few days. And Mark would say it was the quickest he'd worked on any record. He later told NME, I always think, damn, I wish it did take longer because I would have more memories. It was just so quick. That is sad. (laughs) And then he made Uptown Funk, my least favorite song of all time, except for
4: American Pie. Oh, I actually like Uptown Funk obviously back to black was the crucial song of the session you know it's the title track that provided something of a mission statement to the cathartic proceedings the backing track is like an updated version of phil Spector's wall of sounds complete with funeral bells tolling at the end in the video she stands over a grave marked by a tombstone that reads r.i.p the heart of amy winehouse which was subsequently edited out after her death for obvious reasons After Mark Ronson played her that rough verse section that he put together, which if you listen to it, it's really just loops throughout the entire song. It's only dynamics that really signify the shift of the chorus. Amy burned it to a CD and went to the back room at the studio and spent an hour writing lyrics. And the Amy documentary has a shot of the lyric sheet, and it's just covered in hearts like a teenage girl's notebook. It just it kills me. Originally, when she came in to sing what she'd written to Mark, she sang the bit, We Only Say Goodbye With Words, I Died a 100 Deaths, which she later changed to I Died a 100 Times. Uh, Mark offered a little bit of producerly direction. He said, I was like, Producer 101, the words rhyme in the chorus. They have to or it won't be a hit. Amy was so serious about her words, though, and she just looked at me like I was crazy. Like, why would I fix that? That's what came out. That's honesty on paper. And uh, so it stayed. And he later observed that song Back to Black has some of the most unlikely lyrics you could ever imagine in a massive pop single. And there's footage of Amy recording, I think it's the final take actually, in the Amy documentary from 2015. And it's mind-blowing, not only that it exists, but just to watch. It's just so funny to hear her sing the phrase, kept his dick wet in that perfect Billie (laughs) Holiday voice just great. Uh, Ronnie Spector after uh, Amy died recorded a version of Back to Black in tribute to her and she she couldn't bring herself to sing that line. I think She changed to kept his thing wet I believe. She isn't much better but I guess it's... Mm. Um. Okay, now we gotta talk about Rehab which is my least favorite track on the album. So it's admittedly the one that made her a commercial artist and a household name which ultimately you could actually argue is part of her downfall. So... One of her more poignant quotes in the Amy documentary is when she's asked earlier in her career if she thinks she'll ever be famous. And she says, no, my music's not on that scale. I don't think I'll be famous. I couldn't handle it. I'll go mad. Which is very sad to hear in retrospect. So maybe the song Rehab is her undoing. Um actually came from a conversation that Amy had with Mark Ronson while they were taking a break from these early sessions and going for a walk. I guess they were walking around downtown looking for a present for Amy's new boyfriend, this guy Alex Clare, who uh, wasn't in the picture for long. And she started filling Mark in on her ex, Blake, you know, the guy who inspired all these songs. It was kind of natural that the topic would come up. And she specifically talked about the extremely rough period after their breakup in 2005 when she spiraled into a deep depression. And her friends went to her house after I think she fell over and hit her head after drinking. And they said it was like a squatter lived there. It was just clear that she had a serious problem. Uh, Her parents didn't really want to know or get involved. So her manager essentially kidnapped her and drove her to the middle of nowhere, I think like literally in the woods, and begged her to go to rehab. And eventually, just like the song says, she said she'd go if her dad thinks she should. And they had a famous meeting with her father where he declared her fine and that she didn't need to go to rehab. Her father, Mitch, who's kind of a kind of a character in the... I was going to say, he's like the other big male villain in her life, right? <sighs> yeah. Kind of shamefully indulgent he was a cabbie but he had singing aspirations of his own and of course some who kind of felt that i mean a lot of he was the guy who kind of turned her on to all the stuff she loved all the jazz stuff sarah vaughn dinah washington and all the great motown stuff but yeah there are some who feel that he kind of tried to ride her coattails to get something of his own off the ground um Yeah, (laughs) no position to judge. I'm not a father, but yeah, there seemed to have been some questionable choices made by by this man. And one of them was declaring that Amy uh, was fine, didn't need to go to rehab. She said that she was drinking too much because she was uh, young and because she was lovesick and you, quote, can't go into rehab for that. Um, And as her manager, the one who kidnapped her and tried to help later said, this was the moment we lost a very key opportunity. She wasn't a star. She wasn't sworn by paparazzi. And she might have been able to work on herself, you know, alone before a world wanted a piece of her. But alas, it was not to be. So apparently Amy's (laughs) dropping this whole story on Mark Ronson as they're out for a walk. And to hear Amy tell it, she sang the hook out loud just on the spot as a joke, you know, no, no, no and all. And she, she told this is her talking to the Daily Mail in 2007. It was quite silly, really. I sang the whole line exactly as it turned out on the record. Mark laughed and asked me who wrote it because he liked it. I told him I just made it up and that it was true. And he encouraged me to turn it into a song, which took me five minutes. It wasn't hard. It was about what my old management company wanted me to do. <laughs> Mark, Mark does the Chuck, Chuck, it's your cousin. <laughs> marvin winehouse his his face lights up when he hears this you know this hook that she sings and he admittedly feels bad about it later he's talking to zane Lowe. he said she's telling me all this horrible stuff and i'm supposed to be like wow how was that for you and instead i'm like we've got to go back to the studio
5: yeah so, that's uh, uh, there's so many thorny conversations about like what's well, like what do you do i mean it's always trickier with artists right Right. because like nominally that's their entire existence is metabolizing their life into the thing that you are there to support them in you know the thing that you are like you exist in an infrastructure if you're a manager if you're a label if you're a producer to help them create that stuff and if they are using their deep well of sadness and pain to create that stuff. There's always the ongoing dialogue with everyone around it. Like, well, should we be enabling this? But like, if we don't, are we out of a job? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because like, you know, they talk about that with, I mean, this is a out of left field comparison, but like they talk about with like that, with the grateful debt, like so many people whose livelihoods were tied up in getting Jerry back out on the road when he was deeply unhealthy and didn't want to do it anymore. And was really in no shape to do it, and it was it was this unhealthy lifestyle. But they were like, dude, there's like 30 people who feed their families off. I mean, Elvis. being out there. Yeah, 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 yeah.
4: Oy. same deal. I mean, they they would like he would be barely coherent, and there's a story that somebody who's in his entourage tells of like. Elvis is horizontal, basically, in his hotel room before he has to go do a show, and Colonel Tom Parker comes up there and with the tour doctor, and the guy's thinking, oh, great, like, the old man's here, he'll see what's really going on, he'll be able to put a stop to this and see what rough shape Elvis is in, and then he goes into the room and sees that they're dunking Elvis's head in, like, a champagne thing of ice, and- Jesus. Colonel Tom Parker just says the only thing that matters is that that man gets out on the stage tonight. Nothing else matters. And that was the environment. I mean, that's something that's, you know, I mean, it could still be going on for all I know. But I think that, you know, Amy's death might have had a hand in sort of dismantling or at least taking a chunk out of that kind of insidious system. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But yeah, they after they're going for their walk, they went back to the studio and they turned their conversation into a song. And it was initially an acoustic 12-bar blues kind of thing done at a really slow tempo. And Mark put on his producer's cap and said, yeah, that's cool, but how about we put a beat behind it and speed it up? and Mark Rodson had a radio show on East Village Radio which in college I desperately wanted to join oh my god and he played demos of rehab and you know I'm no good on these shows making him the first DJ to play both Biggie's Hypnotize and Amy Winehouse's Rehab I guess Um, and she used to accompany him to these shows when she was in town and Mark told this great anecdote to the fader a few years back we got on so well she would come with me to the East Village Radio on Fridays to do my show she would hang out for 10 minutes and get bored and then go next door to the tattoo parlor and get a tattoo i thought maybe i should stop inviting her because i would feel guilty if she got a tattoo that she didn't really love one day (laughs) she was overtly sexual and playful but there was never a notion that something was really going to happen one time i must have fallen asleep we had this little bench and i woke up and my head was in her lap and she was just stroking my hair as if i were her little boy their friendship is very sweet i do like that yeah but yeah despite the uh very hooky chorus, neither Amy or Mark thought the song was an obvious hit. And Ronson recalls playing it for the Island Records AR r management for the first time. And he said about 15 seconds in, they all said, rewind, rewind. But I didn't think there were going to be dollar signs lighting up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's good to give an artist a story. I think that, that gave Amy a narrative, you know, as opposed to just like a cool hit song. I mean, it happens with Adele too. I think it's always better to have a hit with a song. That's not only catchy, And also displays a tremendous amount of vocal virtuosity, but also gives you a background into whatever's happening. And I mean, rumors got a great example. If you've got the element of a compelling story in there, as well as a catchy chorus, you're going to have a monster. As a sad aside, about a year after the song was released, Amy actually did go to rehab. It was in August 2007. She entered the Causeway Retreat with her new husband and fellow addict Blake Fiedler and addition specialists know that admitting a couple to rehab together is a bad idea, but the Causeway, for whatever reason, let it happen. And perhaps not coincidentally, the Causeway facility was shut down following numerous ethical violations in 2010. And in the Amy documentary, Blake is shown at the facility just badgering Amy, uh, shoving a video camera in her face while they're in rehab, asking her to sing the new updated version of rehab as a joke. And she refuses. (sighs) I know. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
1: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week
6: on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.
4: enter the dap Kings yes from stage us- left somewhere sunny yes
5: after amy recorded these rough cuts ronson was using by his own admission every computer trick in the book to get that vintage sound and that's when he realized that the answer wasn't a computer at all the real vintage sound was the food made <laughs> along the way <laughs> the dap king's Ah, uh, baby. I, I, I said earlier on Twitter to you that that I would cut off my left pink, no, right pinky, the one I don't need to go yeah. back in time and be in the Dap Kings, man. Oh, my God. I mean, they are monsters, every single one of them, mm-hmm. uh, players, but they are also just, I don't know, dude. They're like archivists of yeah. a lot of overlooked figures in Seoul. I mean, they started with Lee Fields. They found Sharon Jones, who was a prison guard, and did you ever see that documentary about Charles Bradley?
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, he found, was
5: a monster. And they found him when he was singing James Brown covers, yeah. and they would just find... the. Uh, anyway, I'm getting... Sorry, I'm putting that, putting that...
4: I saw Charles Bradley not knowing who he was. He, it was at some festival, and he just came Oh, on. Nice. I, was, I was covering the festival for work, and I didn't really want to be there. It was all like you know there's no name i could say right now that wouldn't be offensive so i'm just not going to say anything <laughs> just all acts i didn't really care about and then he comes on and i thought james brown had risen from the dead it was unbelievable this like 60 something year old man
5: have i showed you the my sharon jones video
4: you've never showed it to me you've told it to
5: me <laughs> and i never will <laughs> it's just for me Um, I saw her at a book signing, right? Yes. Well, it was a book event. I was like front row and she pulled me up on stage and she was like, you've been, uh, you've been staring at me me all night. night. Uh, Get up here. (laughs) (laughs) Man, she was an institution. Anyway. So these guys, they basically were all just soul fiends and they got together and they were recording, as I mentioned with Lee Fields and were just like analog dorks, man. They recorded out in Bushwick when Bushwick was still like not a place that you went in a basement to tape analog boards. Their bassist, Gabe Roth said, show me a computer that sounds as good as a tape machine and I'll use it. (laughs) They recorded in this studio that they called the House of Soul. All the rhythm tracks, drums, piano, guitar, bass, all in one room. The drums were recorded on one microphone. It's so good. I I mean, do you ever visit there? No. No, I never knew any of them. I mean, I, or crossed paths with any, because they were already like celebrities by the time mm-hmm. I, I got to, you know, I got to New York, but, well, we'll get to them again, Card ahead of the horse. Um, Mark Ronson had heard a Sharon Jones track and he played it to Amy who said, it's the nuts,
4: which was not a Britishism I was familiar no, it's not, with. You no, know, it's the dog's bollocks. It's the same. It's, I think it's a uh, okay. derivation
5: of that. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, it was a home run. They were the perfect band. And Amy wasn't even at the sessions with them, which is kind of sad because yeah. um, I'm sure she would have loved that And uh, because she was already back in, in London. And the guys in the Dap Kings, just they had no idea that they were working on a record of this scope. Um, the fact that she was already a, a known quantity in the UK didn't mean anything to them. Uh, <laughs> they, all their names are so damn funny to me. Band leader Blinky Griptight <laughs> later said, we didn't have a clue about her already being a star. She probably told us that, but we were like, whatever, her name ain't Marva Whitney. (laughs) So we did it and it was done. And this is the thing that gets into this whole conversation about any artist, any white person making black music and a lot of music in the United States is black music. And I include myself in that. And, you know, you try to have reverence for it and you try to recognize where you're getting the stuff from. But there is an element of cherry picking when it comes to what happened with this band and 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 Sharon Jones in particular, that was the good thing, the cool thing about the Dab Kings, a bunch of the white guys who were making period accurate funk music is that they use their resources to put these older artists on and in Sharon and Charles Bradley and Lee Fields, these guys' case, give them a, a second act that they richly
4: deserved, you know? Or a second chance, really. They never had yeah. a first act in a professional well, sense. Yeah.
5: yeah, and so you get this uh, rich compared to them at least rich white girl from the uk literally flying in and taking their band and their sound uh making a whole bunch more money on it than they ever did uh sharon jones was not thrilled initially at least she told the new york times in 2007 we were just sitting here minding our own business doing our little 45s and albums and all of a sudden they were like i want your sound and then amy would call on the dap kings for live gigs Uh, when they were touring the U S and that came at the expense of them being available for Sharon, the other artists on Daptone and uh, Sharon admitted as much. I mean, she told the times first, I feel kind of angry about it, but if it took Amy to get the Dap Kings heard, then it's a good thing. I say, it's great. Thank you. Back to black, put Daptone on the map as one of the most important labels soul or otherwise. And it brought that kind of retro leaning soul into the mainstream in a big way. But as author Jessica Lipsky noted in her book about the label, It Ain't Retro, Daptone Records, and the 21st Century Soul Revolution, it did not trickle down to people like Sharon Jones, Charles Bradley, Lee Fields, um, Naomi Shelton, and the Gospel Queens are another great band on that on that label. Uh, <laughs> Blinky Tight and some of the other players appreciated that Back to Black was, in his words, a flying f*** you to pop trends, And also admired Amy for being 100% unapologetically herself. She was on that zero f***s given before that term was coined. Uh, And there's a passage from her book that we will quote here. But Sharon Jones had also been on the zero f***s given tip for years as an older front woman competing for audiences with singers half her age. Only to have one of those singers swoop her support system right from under her nose. Amy made a fing 10 million selling record, and we were just trying to sell like a hundred thousand with Sharon, Dap King guitarist Tom Brennick notes. His frustrated acceptance still audible. During the Back to Black sessions, Jones looked at Winehouse and the Dap Kings with a sense of impending doom and lapsed loyalty. Was she going to lose her band to an artist with broader appeal, deeper pockets, and a producer who recognized the canned magic of the Dap Kings? Jones was angry and early on indignant. I'm old enough to be Amy Winehouse's mother. How am I supposed to take a backseat to that child? She questioned. Eventually, yeah, eventually, and with significant reassurance from her fellow musicians, Jones recognized the boon Winehouse's success and a relationship with Mark Ronson could be for Dapton's wider appeal. With a little prodding, she regularly thanked both for recognizing the Dapkins' soul power during interviews. Jones also understood the need to put her own album on pause while the Winehouse business ran its course. But Tom Brennick concedes that Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings' attempt to ride Winehouse's coattails only worked indirectly. How could you tap into a young audience with a f***ing 49-year-old Sharon Jones? Well, if they have ears, you could. Yeah. Winehouse and Sharon Jones met during a 2008 Dap Kings and Sharon Jones performance at the Jazz Cafe in London, and they spent close to an hour talking in Jones' dressing room. In an interview with The New Yorker, Jones recounted, I don't even want to talk about it. Instead of people laughing at her, pray for her. Drugs are so horrible. The Dapkings King's attitude at their sudden and somewhat controversial notoriety can be summed up in this anecdote. When they received a framed platinum record for their work on Back to Black, which signifies over a million sales in the U.S., they hung it above the toilet in the upstairs bathroom of their studio. Bassist Gabriel Roth said, It was the only free space we had.
4: (laughs) Take that how you will. But there is a very nice coda to the Daptones story. We mentioned earlier that Amy wasn't actually present for the sessions with the Dap Kings, and she didn't actually meet them until after Back to Black came out in the fall of 2006 when she came to the US to make promotional appearances. The Dap Kings stood in for her English band and she hit it off with the guys immediately. And she even went out to Bushwick to visit them at the House of Soul, their studio, which is just crazy for me now because it's a pretty nondescript building in a pretty nondescript area that just happens to be like a 10 minute walk from my apartment. So the thought of like Amy Winehouse walking around my neighborhood is really weird to me. Uh, Mark Ronson later told the Village Voice, it was one of the last times I remember her just being unencumbered by any threat of drama or press or paparazzi and it was later that day when she visited them at the house of soul that they recorded her version of valerie by the british van the zutons and Mark Ronson was doing an album of uh, covers of contemporary songs, which was a cool idea because mostly you have albums of covers of old school songs that were, you know revamp. So this was just fresh takes on stuff like Britney Spears' "Toxic" and like a Coldplay song is on there that the Daptones did as an instrumental version. Uh, "God Put a Smile on Your Face," I think that album is great version. It's called, um, mm-hmm. and he wanted Amy to contribute, which she said was a struggle for her because she didn't listen to anything after 1967. <laughs> A woman after my own heart. But eventually she suggested Valerie, which had been a hit in the UK in the summer of 2006. Apparently she had a bit of a pub spat with the guy in the Zootons. And before things escalated, she let it go when she realized who this guy was and that he'd written the song that she actually liked. Uh, He told the NME recently, that moment was very personal. I like to think it's what pushed her to record the song herself. Maybe something good came of that stupid argument. And the Dap Kings spent an entire day working up kind of a slow version of that song, sort of like a Curtis Mayfield cut, which, again, I keep mentioning it, surfaced on the posthumous Lioness album, which was a bunch of rarities. But at the end of the session, Mark Ronson suggested that they pick it up a bit and try a version that was a little bit more upbeat, more Motown-y, with a rhythm section part that was reminiscent of the jam song A Town Called Malice. It's got the same tempo, the same, like, bass thump. (laughs) The Adapt Kings drummer Homer Steinweiss later said, somewhat uh, tartly, that type of beat is not something we ever did. That tempo is more like the strokes or something. So they did one final up tempo take, seemingly just as an afterthought, and that became The One. It was released in 2007, and that was, I think, one of Amy's biggest charting hits, at least in the States. That's my favorite. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the Dap Kings played a few gigs with Amy in the States as part of the Back to Black launch, uh, but sadly, I don't think they ever worked with her again after this. Ugh. I know. Considering his masterstroke of getting the Dap Kings to play on her record, you would have thought that Amy would have trusted Mark Ronson when he said that he wanted to add some strings, but you'd be wrong. You may recall four hours ago, earlier in this episode, that Amy hated, <laughs> hated, hated the strings that were added to her debut album, Frank. And she immediately shut down the conversation every time Mark suggested strings for Back to Black. He later told the fader, I said, Amy, the Shangri-Las, the Phil Spector stuff you love, it's the orchestra that's doing a lot of the work. And she was like, nah, I f-ing hate it. It's Disney bullshit.'" I I wish I could do an Amy Winehouse voice. He even offered to pay for the strings out of his own pocket, promising to remove them from the tracks if she hated them, but to no avail. So he had to get sneaky, and he likes to joke in interviews, I didn't really do them behind her back, I just thought, let's add strings behind her back. And the first song that they mixed back in London was Love is a Losing Game, one of my favorite songs in the album. torch song if there ever was one which was adorned with very tasteful moody strings and Mark Ronson recalled in Mojo she had her head down on the mixing board so I couldn't gauge her reaction I'm freaking out thinking if she doesn't like it we're pretty f-ed. at the end of this she looks up and walks over extends her arms and gives me a big hug I love mm. it just take the harp off the second verse it sounds like some Mariah Carey bulls*** <laughs> <laughs> It's emblematic of this thing about Amy. She can cut you down the size in two seconds flat. You know, I, Amy was initially asked to do the Bond theme to A Quantum of Solace, the Bond movie in 2008, oh. and I guess Mark Ronson said that they had recorded um, some demos for it. He'd written a song for it. I think he wrote it by himself, and they'd done some demos for it, but she, this was really when she was in a dark period, and she kind of just stopped showing up and it was abandoned and they got Jack White and Alicia Keys to do Another Way to Die. Um, You know,
5: it's just my...
4: And Jack White took advantage of it because he knew that they were like hard, they needed a song like fairly immediately. And so Mm. he was like, oh, like they're not going to get somebody else. So I'm just going to put in some stuff that's really like unusual for a Bond theme and they're not going to have time to really like make me go back and redo it. So that's why it's such a kind of a weird Bond theme. It's a pretty, I think it's been called like the most divisive Bond theme that there is. I like it. A lot of people hate it.
5: Yeah. 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 I like it. It's no. no It's no Skyfall. It's no Live and Let Die. It's no Goldfinger.
4: <laughs> There's so many other good pun You Only Love Twice is my favorite. <laughs> uh, I don't really know where else to fit this, but I love that Amy always did the final listens of her songs through the speakers in her father Mitch's cab. And, you know, he said it earlier he's a cabbie. And she always had the engineers or whoever burn what they'd done to a CD so she could play it in his car because she knew that was how most people would be listening to her music. Brian Wilson used to do that too.
5: Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder if she got that from Motown because that was what oh, uh, Barry yeah. Gordy had a, had a like car speaker set up in his office so he could listen to everything on that way that's such a smart idea i love that yeah back to black was released on october 27th 2006 it quickly went multi-platinum uh, most places <laughs> it was the best-selling album of 2007 in the uk It's currently the second best-selling album of the 21st century in britain just behind of course adele and the 12th best-selling album of all time over there The title track was peaking in the charts in the spring of 2007, about the same time that Amy reunited with Blake and married him in a small ceremony in Miami. The song would re-enter the charts at its highest position of number eight after her death in 2011. In the U.S., the album debuted at number seven on Billboard, becoming the highest debut chart entry for an album by a British female solo album, a a record broken a week later by Joss Stone, but still. (laughs) Damn. Uh, yeah, Back to Back was launched in the U.S. in January 2007 with a performance at Joe's Pub in the East Village, backed by the Dap Kings. Damn.
4: Attended by Dr. John, Most Def, and Jay-Z. My dorm was like right around the corner. I don't know why. Oh, I do know why I didn't go. I had no idea it was happening, but oh, that hurts. I would love to have
5: been there. Oh, one of my worst didn't spend the money gigs was Dr. John at BAM, when he <sighs> right after he did that record with uh, Dan Auerbach, which, oh. that record smokes yeah yeah Uh, and then he yeah uh her debut single over here was you know i'm no good with a guest feature by ghostface killer uh ew named it the second best song of the year under rihanna's umbrella took an elder umbrella yeah uh in the u.s rehab had a remix with jay-z and presumably the label thought that her whole Jazz soul girl group retro thing wasn't going to play well over here. And they were positioning her to be a kind of chorus hook singing artist. The interesting thing about that is that in the Amy documentary, she leaves a voicemail on Salam Remy's phone talking about coming up with battle raps. Those are her words. And considering that as a future direction, possibly, probably if she was kidding, but you know, still. Uh, We just talked about the bomb
4: theme. I would love to hear whatever demos of that exist, but Mark Ronson Hmm. has said that it would take, quote, a miracle of science to finish it. So sadly, it seems like we're not going to hear that anytime soon. And Bruce Willis was notably such
5: a fan that he insisted on introducing her when she performed rehab at the 2007 MTV Movie Awards. That is a 2007 sentence. That's a (laughs)
1: co-sign.
4: Ghostface killer, Bruce Willis bruno duffy (laughs) remember bruce willis's record was called the return of bruno Bruno, yeah and he did a song with the temptations and they're like backing him and you could see on all their faces they're just like what (laughs) the hell is this like we're backing this guy amy winehouse was nominated for
5: six grammys at the 50th annual grammys in 2008 including the big four album of the year song of the year for rehab record of the year for rehab and best new artist as well as Best Pop Vocal Album and Best Female Vocal Performance. She won five, tying her for the record at the time for most Grammys won in a single night by a female. Would that have been Nora Jones? Uh, it was a bunch. I think Lauren Hill, quite a few oh, okay. had won
4: five before.
5: Shockingly, the only Grammy she lost was Album of the Year. What was it? This one's for all the marbles. I, that's a great question.
4: I Are you pulling it up? Yeah. Um. Okay, so wait a minute. This would have been 2000... It's... Dep- it's
5: it's not what you think
4: it is. Is it future depressing. sex love sounds? Nope. Give me the smallest hint you can. Clive Davis bait. Oh, is it some kind of Alicia Keys album? Close. I don't know. It was
5: Rivers, The Joni Letters by Herbie Hancock. That one album of the year. Sure did. No, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. It's terrible looking at it in retrospect. The other nominees were Foo Fighters and Vince Gill and then Graduation, so in by Kanye. So in retrospect, we would have thought it would be Back to Black or Graduation, but that is correct. Herbie Hancock's uh, album of covers of Joni Mitchell songs featuring Leonard Cohen and Nora Jones
4: and sure. Tina Turner. But that's
5: the and least, Corinne
4: Bailey Ray. Oh, that put your record on is a great album or whatever that Wither album was. Wither Corinne Bailey Ray. That's the least indicative album of two thousand eight or seven or whatever year it was that I could possibly imagine. Yeah, how about that? Wow. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think this would hit me so deep. Wow.
5: <laughs> um. Famously, Amy was barred from entering the United States due to legal issues surrounding her drug use. So for the first time, the Grammys had a performance beamed in via satellite, which gives an indication of how important she was at the time. The look of genuine shock on her face in the clip where she wins record of the year by her idol, Tony Bennett. It's it's a lot to take in. Have you seen it? I think you sent it to me at one point. Yeah, I watched it. It's it's, It's it's hard.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It's so sweet, <sighs> yeah, yeah. I if, if this anecdote is too hard for you, I can take this one. If you, want. <laughs> yeah, you got to do it. That's a that's
5: a that is a f-ing
4: literary gut punch. Yeah, um you'd think that this would be the best night of her life. She's made Grammy history without even having to leave London. She's being honored by her hero, Tony Bennett. Her parents are right there in front. Uh, Her breakup album is a hit all over the world, and she even reunited with the guy who inspired it, and they are now married. But one of her childhood best friends had a different view of the night. Just after winning these awards, Amy waved her over, and she expected Amy to gush with happiness, but instead she just said, this is so boring without drugs. And... (sighs) to me that might just be the saddest anecdote in this entire story nothing fills that hole yeah exactly (sighs) there is a not to continue with the emotional pile on there is a bone-chilling title card at the end of the 2018 classic albums documentary on back to black uh to me, it's up there with Hemingway's six-word short story, Baby Shoes, in terms of succinct devastation. You know, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. This is just as much of a of a very succinct gut punch. Back to Black has sold 16 million albums. Amy and Blake got back together in 2007. Amy never made another album. She died in 2011. What a... It's not an epitaph, but what a cold, hard facts are unusually cold and hard. We can't go out on such a downer. Uh, In addition to giving renewed commercial viability to soulful singers like Adele, Florence Welch, Sam Smith, Little Boots, Duffy, Paloma Faith, and you could even argue Lana Del Rey, Amy's songs inspired a host of covers across the genre. Beyonce and Andre 3000 covered Back to Black for Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby remake in 2013, a cover that Amy's father Mitch hated, saying that Beyonce didn't bring anything to it, that's his quote, and grumbled that he wasn't asked permission. Uh, Prince used to sing Love is a Losing Game during his gigs, and uh, Amy once joined him on stage to perform it together, which I think is cool. And the great rockabilly pioneer Wanda Jackson did You Know I'm No Good. That song rips. You should hear that. That one's great. Mm. And Ronnie Spector recorded a version of Back to Black, subbing in a new word for dick in the verse, which I love. Um, I think that's a beautiful uh, beehive to beehive tribute to a young woman who looked up to her very much. After all this, I feel like we should give Amy the final word. She once said, I wrote an album that I'm really proud of about a bad situation that I got through, and that's pretty much where it begins and ends for me. Taking something ugly and making something beautiful that gives hope to others, I uh, can't think of a better way to use art. Well said. Whew. (laughs) Do Do a wellness check on everybody listening right now. There's really no sunny face to put on this episode. (laughs) That's usually our job here, but... Just go listen
5: to the music. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. That's why it's there. Well, folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Runtog.
4: We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive
5: producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog.
4: The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder-June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.